John 17. Our Lord has been speaking to his apostles, and uh, now he begins to speak to his Father. Essentially, he's praying that the uh, truth that he has been teaching the disciples in this, this section of John that we've described as the Upper Room, room Discourse, that this truth will be incorporated in their lives. This is the way truth becomes real in a life. It's taught to us. We sense that it's real. We want to respond to it. And then it's prayer that translates that truth in, into life. As Paul puts it in another place, what, he says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you're now perfected in the flesh? In other words, having become a Christian by faith, do we now grow as a Christian by faith or by, by self-effort? And our Lord says, no. No, we have to, we're just as dependent upon God for growth as we are for our initial salvation. So he, he introduces us to the truth, and then he prays that we'll respond to it in obedience. And that's what he's doing in this, in this prayer. Now, the, the prayer is divided into three parts. Uh, it seems that so many things are. Uh, he first prays for himself. And then he prays for the apostles, the 11 apostles that remain, and then he prays for all believers. He prays for himself, for glorification. He prays for his apostles, for sanctification. And he prays for all believers, that is the church, those who will believe because of the ministry of the apostles, for unification. Verse 1 of chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and pray. Uh, looking toward heaven was the traditional Jewish posture in prayer. They raised their hands in this manner and they looked up and they prayed. We are inclined to bow our heads, but it's just a cultural thing. The Jews of that day looked up. Now, there is something significant, I think, about body language. Body language does say something. And the posture of our body when, our, when we pray very often does say something about the state of our souls. That's why sometimes we kneel in prayer, because it, it indicates an attitude of contrition and humility and, and dependence upon God. In this case, our Lord looked up because he was, he was looking up to the Father for help. Now, he knew that God wasn't up in any spatial sense. He knew that, that God lived in the, in the realm of the Spirit, that heaven really is another dimension all around. It wasn't spatially up. But nevertheless, he's indicating this attitude of utter dependence upon the Father. Because this was a time of crisis. He was an extremist. And uh, when, when these times come, there's really only one place to look. That's when our pastors fail us. That's when our family fails us. That's when our counselors fail us. We, only God can help us. Our Lord had come to the end of his life. He was on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane to meet those that were going to put him to death. And so in this state of crisis, he, he looks up to the Father. And you see, that's the important thing. It's not the posture that matters. It's the attitude of, of the heart. In these times of deep and desperate need, when we're at the end of ourselves, it doesn't matter what, what position you, you pray in. It's just, just it's, it's, the, it's the attitude of the Spirit. It's the heart, looking to God and God alone for help. Uh, a couple of years ago, I came across this little poem that struck me as funny, but it, it enshrines a, a truth. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped 
uh, and rapt at upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Shaw. Such posture is so proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Uh, last year I fell in Hitchkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. <laughs> and that indicates something, I think, of uh, our attitude and when the chips are down, when, when things get tough, when there's no, no place else to look. The cry of our heart is, God, God, help me. Father, protect me. Father, glorify me. Father, sanctify those that I've given your word to. Father, unify those that, that I'm leaving behind. That's, that's the way our, our Lord prayed. Now, it's striking as you look through this uh, chapter the number of times uh, that he refers to God as Father. That was unusual for a Jew of that day. They might refer to Abraham's father, or they might refer to him in some other way, but our father was something unusual. It did, just did not use that term of, of, of familiarity. But over and over again, our Lord does. Father, the time has come. Holy Father, in verse uh, 11. Uh, father, verse 24. I want those you have given to me to be with me. And then, righteous Father, verse 25. Father who does what is right. Uh, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and so forth. He's, he's calling upon, upon God as his Father. I, one of the reasons I did not use the NASB, the New American Standard Bible this morning, that's usually the text from which I teach, but I used the NIV because the NASB, for some reason, has, the, uh, uh, has used the old English pronouns whenever they, they uh, translate prayers. The these and the thous and the arts, the, the verb, the old Elizabethan verb forms. I don't know why they did that. It's unfortunate that they did because it gives the impression, generally, though I like the NESB, it gives the impression that there is some special language of prayer, that we have to revert to these more formal pronouns when we talk to God. But you see that that's not an accurate reflection of, of the language that lies behind our translations. The language of this prayer is the language of the streets. The way in which our Lord talked to the disciples, he talked to the Lord because he was his father. I, I uh, well remember uh, dashing right by my father's secretary. He had this very formidable secretary who sat out in the front office, and she was there to prevent anyone from coming in. But I never had to ask permission. And I never referred to my father as Dr. Roper. I just went right by her desk, right into his office, and I called him Father because he was, he was my father. See? And that's the attitude we're to have toward God. See, we are brothers of Jesus. We are sons of God. And we can call him Father. That's the way he taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven. You know my story about the man who prayed all around the world and the lady who tugged on his coat and said, just, just call him Father and ask him for something. We can be that familiar with God. There's always a sense of awe and respect and honor and worship there. But there is also this, this idea that he's a Father to whom we can come, we can cry out in our times of, of desperate need. 
I was coming back from Portland. As you know, our number two son got married last Saturday, and we were coming back from Portland after the wedding. And, and we had our grandson in the car with us, and we stopped at a, uh, a little mini market to pick up some groceries to eat on the way while we were at Baker. And, and uh, Mark was down his hands and knees looking at the toys. And as I walked by, he had a little soldier he was looking at, and he looked up at me and he said, Papa, he said, uh, I'm down here. And I knew exactly what he wanted, but he was afraid to ask me. See, I wasn't his father, and he was, wasn't sure how I'd respond to it. Well, we've got to get over that. He's a father, and we can ask him. Just call him father and ask him for something. That's what our Lord does in, in this passage. Now let's, uh, let's read the first section where our Lord prays for himself, which is all right, by the way. It's not selfish to pray for yourself. Father, the time has come. That is, my hour has come. His death was imminent. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Our Lord prays for glorification. Two elements of glorification. He prays that he will be glorified by the work that he does on earth and that he will be glorified in the same sense in which he had glory before he came, came to earth. Now, glorification is one of those words that we uh, think we know the answer to until somebody uh, asks us what it is. Uh, it's a theological term that we bandy about, and uh, we, we think we know what, what, what glorification is. But I would be willing to bet if I ask you, what does it mean to be glorified? You might not have an answer. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man, that is the most important thing that we are to do, the thing for which we were created, the chief end of man is to glorify God forever. Now, if that, and, and, and the, the confession is right. Now, if that's true, we ought to know what it means to glorify the Father or to have glory. Now, the, the, uh, the word originally meant, the way it was used on the street, uh, meant to think or to seem or to have an opinion. It comes from a, uh, the Greek word dokeo. The, the noun is, is doxe. Dokeo just means to think. It meant to think or to, to see, to have an opinion about something. And then it came to have the idea of what one thinks about himself or the opinion that you have of yourself or others. And then it came to have the idea of reputation because it indicated the, 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 the sum and substance of a person's character and contributions, the contributions that they make to their fellow man or to society. A few years ago, I told you about a a tablet that I saw one time in a museum that listed a man's uh, assets, his wealth, his worth, and then at the bottom, the contributions that he had made to his community. And the last line, the colophon, the little tagline on the bottom said, this is his doxe, his glory. This is what he was known for. This is the kind of person he was. This is the kind of man that he was. Now, that's what glory is, you see. It's the... It's the expression, the manifestation of what we are. Now, when, when our Lord prays for glorification, he prays that people will see 
through his works here on earth, the kind of person he was, the kind of stuff of which he was made. And that prayer was answered. He was looking forward to the cross. And uh, within a few uh, hours, he was to die. And and he, he wanted to be strong and courageous. He wanted to to manifest love and compassion and strength through this through through the cross. And he wanted people to see that he was the Savior as a result of the offering up of his life. And he wanted them to see that he was the glorified Savior through his his uh, his exaltation, his ascension and exaltation. So he prays for that, that people through the cross will see what kind of person he was. And, and you know, in thinking about this, again, this is a prayer that was answered because our Lord has a very good reputation. Even among those who, who don't take him very seriously, even among those who believe that the church has distorted his teachings because they can't handle some of the supernatural aspects of his, of his ministry, even among those people, they do not badmouth our Lord. I've never heard anyone say Jesus is a liar or he's a sham. Or he's crazy. You just rarely, if ever, hear that, that sort of thing. This prayer was answered. People can't get away from the fact that, that, that our Lord manifests through his days here on earth, through the way he cared for people and the way he taught and the way he died, that he was a, he was a righteous man, you see. So this prayer was answered. When he prays for glorification, when he prays that people will see his character through the cross, the father heard and answered. And then secondly, he prays for the glory that he had in in God's presence before the world began, you see. The presence, the glory that he had in heaven. Remember, John says, uh, in the beginning was the Word. That's, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They, they saw flashes of his glory. They saw manifestations of his, of his character, his love for people, his concern for those that were down and out. They saw that, but they didn't see the whole thing. They, they, they saw God in disguise. What he's praying for now is that when he's returned to, glo- to heaven... He will uh, have restored the glory of God that he had before. And the, the world would see him as he really is. Now, that, that's, that prayer has been answered also. Paul says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, is God to the glory of, of, of the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That means if, you, if we were to see Jesus today, we would fall at his knees and worship him because we'd see the glory of God manifest in, in his person. That prayer was, was answered as well. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it well in his uh, book on miracles when he describes the incarnation this way. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being, into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabeds of nature. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. 
One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift it. He must disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches up, uh, marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then, then uh, glancing in midair, then gone with the splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now, that they have come up into the light, down below where it lay colorless in the dark. He lost his color too. See, when he was here, when he came down, descended into the depths, he lost his color. We would never have known that he was God merely to look at him. But now he's no longer God in disguise. He's God manifest. He's been glorified. And someday we'll see him as he is. So that prayer was, was answered. Then uh, he prays for his disciples, verses 6 through 19. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. That is, they were, they were believing Jews. They belonged to God. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. In other words, God said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Messiah. And they... they they took him at his word. They believed that. Now you know that everything you've given me comes from you. In other words, the Lord has the same authority that the Father has. For I gave them the words you gave me. The Father gave the words to the Son. The Son taught the words to the, the apostles, and they accepted them. They accepted Jesus' words as God's words. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they, they believed that you sent me. In other words, they believed he was the Messiah. That term, the one sent, is the word that's used over and over again for his messianic mission. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. He doesn't pray for the world. Uh, here, he does pray for the world on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's not that he didn't care about the world. It's that here he cannot pray for the world what he's going to pray for the apostles. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. In other words, the way these men lived gave glory to Christ. They, you remember the, the words of those in Acts who, who perceived because of the behavior of the apostles that these men had been with Jesus. There was something different about them because they, there was something different about him. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name. I protected them while I was here. I can no longer protect them. Now you protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. That's Judas, the son of perdition. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they true that they too may be truly sanctified. As clearly he's contrasting two uh, two attitudes here in this section. There are those that are in the world, and then there are these apostles, these eleven that God had given to them. These apostles were men who were dependent upon God. They believed God. They accepted what God said about the Son. They were God-dependent men. And then there's the world over here. Now, that's another one of those terms we have to explain because everybody thinks they know what the world is until we, we ask them, you know, what, what, what is worldliness? What does it mean to be in the world? Now, when the Bible talks about the world, it's not talking about the earth or even the people that live on the earth. It's rather talking about an attitude that pervades humanity in general. That's what real worldliness is. I was told when I was growing up that, uh, you know, about the uh, dreadful dirty dozen that devote disciples do not do. Uh, They do not uh, smoke. They do not go to movies. They do not dance. I've forgotten all the others that they don't do. But there are a whole lot of things that, that, that you didn't do because those were worldly things. And, uh, and yet, I knew an awful lot of people who didn't do any of these things, and yet they were very, very worldly people. Because worldliness is not, is not a list of things that you don't do. I'm not advocating any of those things. Some of them are downright unhealthy, and some of them would be wrong for us. I, I'm, yeah, understand me. I'm not advocating any of these activities. But that's not what worldliness is. Worldliness is basically an attitude of indifference to God. It's saying, I don't need God. I can do it my own way. Or as, as Frank Sinatra says, so puts it so clearly, I did it my way. That's an attitude of worldliness. See? Now, that is the big lie that Satan has sold the world. The lie is simply that you can do it your way. You can't, really. See, the devil said to Eve, you can be a god. Now, if anybody tells you you can be a god, you know the source of that message because that is the devil's lie. You don't need God. You don't need to be dependent upon God. You can be God. You can go your own way and live your own life. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians, people who consider themselves Christians, who don't do all these dreadful things that worldly people are, you know, are supposed to do, who are imbued with that philosophy of life that I really can do it myself. I don't need any help. That's the essence of worldliness. And it's a lie because we are all utterly dependent upon God. The whole time I've been talking, you know, your heart's been going pump, pump, pump. You know why it does that? Uh, some of you physicians will say, well, it's because of the autonomic nervous system. You know, it keeps that thing pumping. But you know who's behind that? It's God. Every little beat of the heart is because God says Beat. Relax, beat, relax. And when we finally come to the end of our life and God is through doing to us and through us what he intends to do, he says, okay, heart, stop. And that's the end of my earthly life. Not the end of me. (laughs) Big difference. But the end of my earthly life. Now, uh, you see, we, we want to believe that we don't need God. That we're utterly independent. We're autonomous beings, but we're not. We're dependent upon God, you see. Now, those who are in the world say, we don't need God. 
What Jesus is praying for his apostles is that they would recognize their dependence upon God. Now, he prays two things, basically one thing, but put in two ways. He says uh, in verse 11, protect them by the power of your name. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you, you, you gave me. Now, I'm going out of the world, in verse 15. You, you must protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the big lie. Protect them from thinking that they, that they can do it by themselves. He does not pray that they'll be protected from harm. does not pray that they'll be protected from persecution and from suffering and from hardship and from death. Almost all the apostles died as martyrs. But what he prays for is that when the times get tough, their faith won't fail. They'll keep on depending upon him. It's like Paul. Paul prays in 2 Timothy. He says, when I stood before the emperor, all my friends forsook me. But the Lord stood by me and protected me and promised me that he would protect me from every evil deed. And we say, oh, that means Paul is going to be let uh, he's going to be set free. He wasn't. Nero took him out on the Ostian way south of, of the city of Rome and chopped off his head a few days after he wrote that. He wasn't talking about protection from harm. He was talking about protection from copping out, defecting, giving way to fear, a failure of nerve, a failure of faith, you see. So our Lord prays for his disciples and when the times get tough and tense and hard, that, that their faith won't fail. Protect them. He says, I protected them while I was here. Now I'm leaving. You must protect them. And then he says, sanctify them. Uh, verse 17, that verse that we know so well and quote so often, sanctify them through truth. My word is truth. Now, the sanctify is another one of those words that we, that we may not understand. It was used in the ancient uh, Greek world uh, of things that were set apart for a holy use, the priests and priestesses that that uh, uh, that uh, labored in the temples back then, the pagan temples, were said to be sanctified. They used the same word because they're set apart for the gods. New Testament writers picked up that term and applied it to Christians. We're all priests in a, in a very real sense. We're all set apart for God. I, uh, The way I explain it to my men on Wednesday morning is that sanctification just means being God's man. I say that to men. To, to women, I'd say it means being God's woman, you see. Instead of being a woman of the world, being God's woman. Instead of being controlled by the, by the company store, instead of being the company's man, uh, it's being God's man, you see. That, that's what sanctification is. Simply means being set apart for holy use, being God's man. And what is it that does it? It's the truth. It's the truth. There's so many lies out there in the world, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, we better believe it, but they're coming at us thick and fast. And this is what sets us apart. This is the truth. And this is why we need to be reading this book, and we need to be believing it, and we need to be acting on it, because we're being lied to all the time. I've got a little hobby going, Carolyn will tell you. I've been making a list of lies that I've been hearing this uh, Christmas season. I sit in front of the television set with my notebook, and I just... I just jot down lies. And I, I've got a bunch of them. I was sitting there, you know, they have this thing they call commercial break. And that's where you hear more of them than any other time. 
And, and someone on the, on, in one of those commercials had the audacity to say, give her what her heart longs for, a diamond. Now, that's a lie. Now, uh, we've got some diamond merchants in our congregation here. And before you tar and feather me, let, let, let me tell you that I have nothing against buying a diamond for your, for your wife or for some other loved person as a real expression of your love. That, that's great. But if you think that what she longs for is a diamond, you have missed the mark. That's not what her heart longs for. You know what her heart longs for? Her heart longs to be loved, to be number one in your life, to be more important to you than your hunting and fishing buddies, to be more important to you than uh, the people down at the office or your automobile or your shotgun or whatever. She's got to be number one. She's got to know that she's loved. And if you give her a diamond to show her that, that's a different thing. But if you think a diamond is what what she's longing for, then you've missed the mark. You bought the lie. I've lost track of the number of couples that come to my office, and the woman's just miserable. Just miserable. Guy's happy as a clam. And I say, what's wrong? And the guy says, I don't understand what's wrong with her. I provide for her need. She's miserable. And I, and I, and I give her everything she wants. And she, she's always unhappy. What's wrong with her? And after we chat a while, I, I uh, get around to saying as gently but as, as forthrightly as I can, you know, I, I think the problem is this. You know, what you, I can see why you're happy. What you got is a maid and a mistress and a mama. You, you got someone to clean house for you and to sleep with you and to take care of your children and to calm your fears when you're all upset. But you know what? She doesn't want to be merely a maid and a mistress and a mama. She wants to be loved. And that's the problem. That's why she's unhappy. And you can give her diamonds, but it's just going to be so much cut glass to her unless you really love her. Now, all I'm saying is we've got to learn to discern the difference between truth and lies. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is not some kind of religious sheep dip that, that you get placed into. See, it, it, it's, a, it's a matter of being God's man and woman instead of the world's man and woman. You look at the TV set and you, and you laugh. You say, that is a big lie. What does that for you? It's the truth. We're sanctified through the truth. So our Lord prays for himself for glorification that the world will see the, the, the sort of stuff of which he's made. And that, in turn, would glorify the Father because what the Son did, he did in dependence upon the Father. And then secondly, he prays that we will be, that the apostles will be sanctified, they'll be protected from worldliness, and, and they'll be set apart for God's purposes by the, by the truth. I can't believe it. They even put a clock up there, and I still missed it. What am I going to do? His third prayer is for unification. Let me just say this. He, he, he is not praying for organizational unity. He's praying for the unity of the Spirit. Look how he puts it. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that 
that you sent me. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I've loved them even as, as you have loved me. He's not talking about organizational unity, those kinds of, those attempts to try to put together uh, organizations that will hold churches together, they never work. We had a Graham crusade recently, and the churches worked together beautifully as long as the crusade was going. But as soon as the crusade was over, the thing fell apart. So difficult to keep any kind of organizational unity going. And uh, he's not talking even about common belief because we all believe all sorts of things. You know, there's a common body of belief of really important things, which I I think of in terms of the Apostles' Creed, just that very simple uh, second century document that, that describes what, what the early church believed. Just just the hard core of faith, the essence of it. It has to do mostly with, with Christ. You see, and we, we just disagree all over the place elsewhere. Uh, you know what Baptists love to see, don't you? One hand in the air. You know what Baptists hate to see? Two hands. See, we're all different. We worship in different ways. Some of you don't even get it. You? It's because you weren't Baptists. You know, here, here are the Charismatics, and here are the Baptists, and here are the Episcopalians, and here are the Evangelical Catholics, and on and on you go. You know, we just we're all we're all different. But. There is a unity that our Lord has, has created, which is a, is a spiritual unity. Our Lord says, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and, and you're in me, and we we'll all love each other. See, it all, it all, what it boils down to is who or what you're depending upon for your salvation. Are you looking to the Lord Jesus and to, to God himself for your salvation? Or do you love him? Are you devoted to him? Are you worshiping him? Is he the center of your life? If you are, then you're at one with other Christians. And I... I go different places, and I run into Christians that have different cultural backgrounds, different linguistic backgrounds, and there's almost an instantaneous recognition of the Spirit of God in that person. And it doesn't matter who they believe, what they believe, in the peripherals. What you sense is that you're one because you have a common love for the Lord Jesus, and you're counting on him for your salvation. I, I spent a, 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 quite a bit of my time when I was going to school in the Jesuit seminary in, in Berkeley and discovered that, that right there there are, there are men that love God with all their hearts. There are problems in Catholicism. I recognize that. But there are Catholics that genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ and worship him. And if they do, then we're one with them, you see. That's what he's saying. He just prays that we'll be one. Not organization, but spiritually. And then uh, in verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Praise that we'll continue to be one on into eternity. We'll continue to love the Lord Jesus throughout eternity. See, that's, that's, that's what eternity means. It just means being with the one we love, being with Christ. As John Bunyan put it, he ascended Calvary so that he might not dwell on Mount Zion alone. Do you know why our Lord died for us? Because he didn't want to be alone throughout eternity. He wanted us, us there because he loves us. And he wants us to love him. You see. So that we're not only one now, we'll be one throughout eternity. 
Now, uh, I think this is the way for us to pray, and I, I have shot myself in the foot this morning. I've got no time to develop any of this, but uh, I, I would just like to say that we need to pray this way. This is the way we ought to pray. It's all right to pray for, for needs, whatever they are, just express our dependence upon God, but as a church and as individual believers, we need to pray for ourselves for glorification. In other words, that we will become more and more like what we are. We are the sons of God, John says. And therefore, we ought to pray that that more and more of the Son of God will be manifest in us. That's what Paul means when he says we, by looking at the face of Jesus, we go from glory to glory. And one of these days, we're going to see him, John says, and we're going to be just like him. We'll be translated, transmuted, changed. Into, into his glory will be just like him. That's what Paul means when he says, I, I believe that the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Read the text. It doesn't say to us. It says in us. And one of these days we're going to stand before our Lord and we will be just like him in character. Regardless of how much we've failed and fallen here on earth, we're going to see him and his glory will be manifest in us. So we ought to pray for ourselves, for one another's church, for a greater and greater expression of glory in our in our lives. And then second, we ought to pray for sanctification, that we will be set apart by the truth, that we will increasingly recognize the lies in the world and learn to resist them and, and act according to the truth. And then finally, for unification. That we as believers will love each other even though there are differences in our church. Some of you are Calvinists, some of you are Arminians, some of you are pre-mill, some of you are post-mill, some of you are pre-trib. Some of you are dispensationalists, some of you are covenant people. Some of you don't even know what you believe. You just wander in here and, you know, you don't know up from down. I'm on your side. <clears throat> but we're one because we love the Lord Jesus and we're counting on him. For our salvation. Let's pray. And let's take a moment. Because we are Jesus' brothers. And we're sons of God with him. And because he is our father. Let's, let's pray this prayer. First for ourselves. Pray for glorification. Pray that, that our Lord will increasingly work on your life. To make you more and more like him. And pray for sanctification. Ask that the Lord will help you to recognize lies when, when they appear and to face them and deny them and begin to act according to the truth. And then pray that for your wife, for your husband, for your children, for your friends, your Christian business associates, the elders here at Cole people who lead and teach you elsewhere. And then let's pray for unification, that we as a body will be one, that we'll stick together and love each other and work out our differences and care for each other no matter what, what happens. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this truth. It, it strikes a responsive chord in our hearts because we we just don't find anything like it anywhere else but 
we come to your word and we <clears throat> see things revealed as they really are. It has about it the ring of truth. And we want, we want to respond to it, Lord. And as we go into this Christmas season and we're so frazzled and harried and pushed, it seems that all the joy goes out of the experience. We just want to rest and settle down and be at peace, learn from you to be gentle and humble and tranquil and, and courageous wherever that's needed. We just ask that you'd impart that to us, we ask in Jesus' name.